following is a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more information on Shaw or our teaching resources, visit www.shaw.org.nz. Now, we are in uh, the series in the book of 2 Corinthians. So if you brought a Bible along, now's the time to, uh, to bring it out, open it up, boot up the iPad or the phone and get out the Bible on the phone. Uh, close down Facebook, uh, get up the Bible there. Uh, we trust you that you're using the right app. And uh, we're going to dive into this. So we're pretty early in the, uh, in the series still in 2 Corinthians. We've just done two messages on this so far. And we're looking at this ancient letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to the church in Corinth. And let me just say this. I, I haven't said it so far, and I've meant to. It's a really good idea at some stage soon to read through this book, this letter, as a whole, as a whole letter. Because when you think about it, uh, we, we tend to, as Christians, what we tend to do is to read verses from the Bible in isolation. We read a verse here, got a verse for the day over here. We just tend to read verses. Uh, but that would be a bit like getting a letter from a friend and just reading a sentence and then saying, right, I'll just put that aside. I'm going to come back tomorrow. I'm going to pick out another sentence and I'll read that and reflect on it. And then the next day I kind of go to the end of the letter and read a sentence from there. And, and you'd never get the sense of the whole thing. And, and this letter is a letter. This is a letter that Paul wrote. So if you want to get the sense of the whole thing, you need to read it as a letter. It's not that long. It's only 13 chapters and some of them are quite short. So see if you can put some time aside, around about half an hour maybe, and read the whole of 2 Corinthians in one sitting. It will give you the flow of the letter. It will help you with the understanding Paul's thought and the progression of his thought through the letter to see the recurring themes and the motifs, and it will just help you get your head around what this letter is as a whole. So see if you can put the time aside to do that in the next little while. For today, we're going to jump back in in chapter 1, uh, we are up to verse 12 in chapter 1, and I'm going to read through almost to the end of the chapter. Now this is our boast. Our conscience testifies that we have conducted ourselves in the world, and especially in our relations with you, with integrity and godly sincerity. We have done so relying not on worldly wisdom, but on God's grace. For we do not write you anything you cannot read or understand, and I hope that, as you have understood us in part, you will come to understand fully that you can boast of us just as we will boast of you in the day of the Lord Jesus. Because I was confident of this, I wanted to visit you first so that you might benefit twice. I wanted to visit you on my way to Macedonia and to come back to you from Macedonia and then to have you send me on my way to Judea. Was it fickle when I intended to do this? Or do I make my plans in a worldly manner so that in the same breath I say both yes, yes, and no, no? But as surely as God is faithful, our message to you is not yes and no. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who was preached among you by us, by me and Silas and Timothy, was not yes and no, but in Him it has always been yes. For no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. And so through him, the amen is spoken by us to the glory of God. Now it is God who makes both us and you stand firm in Christ. He anointed us, set his seal of ownership on us, and put his spirit in our hearts as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. All right, let me start with a question here. 
Not a question to answer out loud, just a little question to think about in your mind. This is a question for all ages, kids as well as adults. I want you to think about whether there has been a time in your life when you made a promise that you didn't keep. Any politicians here this morning? That could be close to home for you. Actually, I heard a great story this last week on the news. The, uh, the Green Party uh, had come up with a proposal to create this independent body called the Policy Costings Unit. You hear about this? And uh, this, this independent body would be responsible for evaluating all the promises made by political parties in election year. So rather than just relying on the cost of those promises that the party said that this is going to cost, there would be this independent body that evaluated the actual financial burden of those policies to the taxpayer. The funny thing about the story was the idea got squashed because nobody knew how much a policy costings unit would, set, would take to set up because there was no policy costings unit to independently assess how much a policy costings unit would take to set up. There was a strange twist of political irony there, I thought. But this is the theme of this passage, is promises made, promises kept, promises broken. And I want you to think about that. Is there a time in your life when you made a promise that you didn't keep? What Paul's talking about in this passage are times when he has made promises to the Corinthians that they are now accusing him of not keeping. And then he takes that and he maps that onto the bigger issue of God's promises, promises that God has made and how God has gone about keeping those promises. So let's try and trace a little bit of Paul's thought in this passage. He starts off talking to the Corinthians about his travel plans and his changing travel itinerary. Paul, back when he wrote 1 Corinthians, when he wrote his first letter to this church, he made a promise, he made a commitment to them that he would come and visit them after he visited Greece, after he visited Macedonia. But when that letter got delivered by Timothy to the city of Corinth, Timothy found the church was in such a state of disarray, such a mess, that Paul cut his travel plans short, and he ended up visiting Corinth sooner than he thought he was going to, so that he could get there and try and sort out the dysfunction in that church. And then having done that, he changed his travel plans on them again, because he had told them that he was going to visit them twice. And he, and he says that in this, in, this, in this text, he was going to visit them on the way to Macedonia then, and then come back again on the way back. But that visit, when Paul went to Corinth, was such a difficult one, such a difficult time, he calls it his painful visit. We'll look at this more next week in terms of what happened there. It was a really hard visit for Paul. It was such a difficult visit that he decided not to make a second visit, not to come back again, but just to write this letter from Ephesus, which is 2 Corinthians. So Paul's made these commitments, these travel plans, and then they ended up changing. They ended up changing twice. And this is quite a big deal for the Corinthians. They're not very happy about that. And they see all of these changing plans that Paul has made as a sign of weakness. They see it as a sign that he is not a strong leader, as a sign that he's fickle and that he doesn't keep his word, that he can't be a man who is relied upon. They're basically accusing Paul of talking out of both sides of his mouth at the same time. He's saying yes, yes, and no, no at the same time. And, and you know, you know when, when you deal with a person like that, who's saying yes and no at the same time, who's sort of saying this, different things about the same issue in different circumstances. It's infuriating. It's frustrating when you're dealing with a person like that. And that's how the Corinthians are feeling about Paul, that he's a fickle person and he's not keeping his promises. Now, you can imagine that Paul is going to be frustrated by that because in Paul's mind, the reason that he's changing his travel plans is for the sake of the church. 
It's for the sake of the Corinthian church. The reason that he went straight to Corinth was because they needed his help. The reason that he cut his second visit or didn't make a second visit is because it would have been too painful for them had he come back. So Paul is thinking of the church. He's trying to be faithful to the church. He's trying to act in their interests, but they are just seeing this as fickle. And I think if it was me responding to those kinds of allegations, I'd be tempted just to throw it in. I mean, you, you think for Paul, you know, it's, it must have been tempting just to say, look, forget it. I've got other churches over here I can focus on. I've got other people that want my help. I've got plenty of other stuff to do. If you guys are going to make these kinds of allegations, these kind of accusations against me, I'm just going to, I'm, I'm leaving it. That's what I would have been tempted to do. But Paul doesn't do that. Thankfully, Paul's a more gracious person than I am. And he responds much more graciously to the Corinthians. He doesn't get into the details of his travel schedule. He doesn't spend a long time defending himself. But what he does is he turns the attention of the Corinthians towards God, towards Jesus. And this is what Paul wants to do again and again in 2 Corinthians when he's dealing with a particular issue that's going on. As quickly as he can, he wants to get to Jesus. As quickly as he can, he wants to segue towards the gospel and talk about Jesus. And that's what he does. So the discussion ends up being this much bigger issue of God's faithfulness to God's promises, not just Paul's faithfulness to Paul's promises. And effectively what Paul says is, all right, let's take this issue of fickleness, let's take this issue of promises made, promises broken, promises kept, and let's think about that in relation to God. Is God a promise-keeping God? Has God been faithful to the promises that He has made? In scripture, or can God be accused of being fickle? Can God be accused of saying yes, yes, and no, no at the same time? And to answer that question, you need to think about the promises that God has made in scripture, and particularly through the Old Testament. Remember, that's the Bible that Paul has, that's the Bible the Corinthians would have had, the Old Testament. So they're thinking particularly of all these promises that God has made right through the entirety of the Old Testament, promises going all the way back to Abraham. In Genesis 12 and 15, when God appeared to Abraham and made some extraordinary promises to him, promised him, Abraham, I'm going to give you land. I'm going to give you the land of Canaan. I'm going to give you descendants. Your descendants will be as numerous as the stars in the sky, as numerous as the sand on the seashore. He promised that from Abraham's descendants, there would be a people of blessing, a people whom God would have a unique and special relationship with. And then as Abraham became the nation of Israel, as his descendants became the nation of Israel, God makes these specific and special promises to Israel that they will be a people for his own possession, that he will enter into covenant relationship with him, that they will be his people and he will be their God and they will be a light to the nations, the means through which God's mercy and, and grace and love and character will be seen by all people. And God continues making promises all through the Old Testament, even in the darkest of times for Israel, even in the midst of judgment and exile. God makes promises that, I, that He will restore the nation, that He will restore their fortunes, that they will be again a great people, a people of blessing, a people of power, a people of prosperity, a people of peace. God just makes promise after promise after promise in the Old Testament. And then the question is, you come through to the New Testament, how do these promises get fulfilled? How do these promises get kept? Because what God does in the New Testament is not to make Israel specifically a light to the nations, but what he seems to do is to make Jesus a light to the nations. 
What he seems to do is not to make Israel a great and powerful nation, but to make Jesus a great and powerful Lord. And so the question is, well, how has God kept his promises back here? Is he saying, by saying yes to Jesus, is God saying no to Israel? That's really the question that Paul's asking. Is God saying yes and no at the same time? Is it like Israel was God's plan A? And he kind of journeyed with Israel for a while, and then that didn't work, so God scrapped that plan and then went with plan B, which was Jesus. Is that, is that sort of how it, how it works? Because if that's true, then maybe God could be accused of being fickle. Maybe God could be accused of talking out of both sides of his mouth at the same time. Is God faithful to his promises or not? And here's the way Paul answers that question in verse 19. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who was preached among you by us, was not yes and no, but in him it has always been yes. For no matter how many promises God made, they are all yes in Christ Jesus. It's a wonderful phrase, isn't it? Great verse. All of God's promises are yes in Christ Jesus. In other words, Paul's saying it's not that by saying yes to Jesus, God has said no to all of these promises. It's that by saying yes to Jesus, God has also said yes to all of these promises. In the Old Testament, Jesus is the fulfillment of all these great promises to Abraham, to Israel, even to other nations. In the Old Testament, they all find their fulfillment in and through the person of Jesus. That's, that's the key to this passage. If you don't hear anything else in this message, just hear this. Jesus is the fulfillment, the great yes spoken by God to all the promises that God has made in Scripture. Jesus is the, is the climax of Israel's great story, the apex of this whole redemptive story that works its way through the Bible. Jesus is the fulfillment of that story and the great yes to all the promises of God. Jesus represents the faithfulness of God to the promises that he has made. So to understand that, it might be helpful maybe to focus on one specific promise. Let me just run one scenario with you here so you see how this works. You don't need to turn to the Scriptures, but let me just describe this to you. Back in the Old Testament, one of the key promises that God made was the promise that He would make a new covenant with the nation of Israel. He says this in Jeremiah 31, I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel. This is a covenant when God says, I will place my laws on the hearts of my people. They're not going to be written on tablets of stone anymore. They're going to be written on the hearts of my people. This is going to be a covenant where all of my people will know me, from the least of them to the greatest. This will be a covenant where I am your people and you are my God. This is a covenant God is making, he says, and this is in the midst of a dark time in Israel's history. I'm going to renew this covenant. I'm going to make a new covenant. It will be even greater than the old one. Now, the question is, as you come through to the New Testament, how is that promise fulfilled? And the reason I chose that example is because the Bible is abundantly clear on how that promise is fulfilled when you turn over to the book of Hebrews. In Hebrews chapter 8, the author quotes exactly that section of Jeremiah 31, this long extended quotation of God's promise to make a new covenant with the house of Israel, outlines exactly what God has promised. And then here is how the author of Hebrews describes this promise being fulfilled in Hebrews 9.15, for this reason Christ is the mediator of a new covenant that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. Now that he's died as a ransom to set them free from the sins committed under the first covenant. So Hebrews is saying Jesus has now come as the mediator of this new covenant. That promise is not annulled. That promise is not done away with. That promise is fulfilled in and through Jesus. 
It's not exclusively for Israel anymore. It's open now to all those who follow Jesus by faith of any nation, any tribe, any tongue. But it's fulfilled in and through Christ Jesus. And so we are now the recipients of that promise. If you're a Christian, you are a new covenant Christian. You, you exist, you, you stand in relationship with God under this new covenant that God has made with Christ as the mediator. So that promise of God to make a new covenant, it's fulfilled in Christ, and then we become the beneficiaries. We become the recipients of that promise in our lives as new covenant believers standing in relationship with God through that covenant. Now, you could go through promise after promise after promise in the Old Testament and look at how these are fulfilled in Jesus. God says in Ezekiel, I will come and shepherd my people. I will be the good shepherd. And then Jesus comes along and what does he say? I am the good shepherd. The fulfillment of that promise. God says, I will pour out my spirit upon you. Book of Joel and Ezekiel. I'll pour out my spirit. Your sons and daughters will prophesy, dream dreams, see visions. I'll, my spirit will be upon all people. And then what does Jesus do? In, in the Gospel of John, one of the last things he does with his disciples, breathes upon them and says, receive the Holy Spirit. <whistles> Breathe the Spirit upon his disciples. Jesus is the fulfillment of these great promises of God in the Old Testament. God promised to David, promised King David, a son will sit on your throne, a king will sit on your throne, one of your sons, his, his dynasty, his kingdom will never end, it will be an eternal throne through all generations. Jesus comes along and he's called the son of David. He is the one, he is the Davidic king, the one who now sits on the throne of God whose kingdom knows no end. Time and time and time again, Jesus is the, is the one through whom all of these promises are being fulfilled. And then Paul makes this wonderful statement in the next verse in 2 Corinthians and says, no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. And then at the end of verse 20, and so through him, the amen is spoken by us to the glory of God. That's a beautiful phrase. The amen is spoken by us. You know, we say, if you're a Christian, how many times do you think you've said the word amen? Hundreds, maybe thousands. That, that's what we say when someone has prayed, that's sometimes what we say at the end of a song. We say, Amen. And when you say Amen, that's actually a Hebrew word, right, Shira? A Hebrew word. So you didn't know you could speak Hebrew, right? You were listening to Shira thinking, I could never do that. Well, you do whenever you say Amen. And it means simply, I agree. I affirm what's been said. So somebody prays and you say, Amen, you are joining yourself to that prayer. You are saying, I affirm what has been prayed. I receive it. I stand with that. I, I affirm it. And so in a beautiful kind of poetic way, Paul is, is saying the, all these promises of God through the Bible, they're all, it's all like a prayer that's been prayed. And then we get to say amen to that as we receive these promises of God into our lives. And we say that amen in a sense when we become a Christian. When you first came to Christ, you might not have said the word amen, but that's what is happening. You are saying, I affirm all of those promises. I see Jesus as the fulfillment of all the great promises of God, as the fulfillment of the whole biblical story, and I receive those promises into my life. The very fact that you receive the forgiveness of God through Jesus Christ, through his sacrifice on your behalf, means that you are receiving the fulfillment of the great promises of God through Scripture, that he, would, that he would forgive the sins of his people. 
and we receive that in our lives as we give our lives to Christ through faith. So we sound the amen to all these promises of God. And this is not just something that happens when you become a Christian. It's something that keeps on happening every day as we live by the promises in Scripture, as we live by the promises that God has made. In a sense, every day, we are called to keep on saying amen to the promises of God, to keep on affirming the promises of God, keep on receiving the promises of God in our lives. Someone's estimated that in the Bible, there are over 3,000 promises that God has made. Three Old Testament and New Testament, over 3,000 promises God has made. And they are there for us. They weren't directly made to us. They might have been made to Abraham or Israel or the disciples or whoever it was. But as believers in Jesus Christ, those promises are there for us to claim in faith and to receive and to celebrate and to live by. And this passage gives us, I think, some guidelines for how we can do that. Some guidelines for how we can live out the promises of God in Scripture in our everyday lives. I want to just suggest three questions to ask as we understand and apply the promises of God in Scripture to our lives. First question to ask is, is quite simply, what has God promised? What has God promised? I don't know whether you've ever had the experience of sensing that God has personally promised you something. That God's spoken to you in some way and he's promised something to you. Or maybe the experience where someone has said to you, I really feel like God is speaking through me and promising this to you. And God's told me this and it's a promise for you. Those can be powerful moments and those can be moments that really capture our hearts because if they tap into the deep, deep desires of our hearts and our lives and they resonate with something, those are things that our heart just, just latches onto. And, and I do believe that God can speak directly to us and can speak through us into the lives of other people. But I just would encourage you in those situations, if you sense God speaking directly, making a promise to me directly, to hold that promise lightly. To hold that promise lightly. Because even if God has spoken to us, we have to accept that we are very imperfect receivers of that message. And that message is always going to be filtered through our own subjective experience, our own hearts, our own minds, our own conscience. And, and, we, and we are far, 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 far from perfect in our ability to hear and interpret and understand and apply whatever it is God may be speaking to us. We are broken and we are fallen people. So when we hear these promises of God, or we, we feel we might have heard these promises of God or someone said something to us, just hold that very, very lightly. And when we come to Scripture and we see the promises of God in Scripture, then we are standing on solid ground. That's the solid ground. So I'm not saying it can't happen over here. I'm not saying God can't possibly make, talk, or speak. But I'm saying when we come to Scripture, that is the really solid ground that we have to stand on. Those promises of God that we find in Scripture, those are the promises we can put the full weight of our lives upon. I know they're not specific and personal about this is going to happen in your life necessarily, but the promises in Scripture are the ones that we can put our full weight in. So just be careful and be discerning if you have that sense that maybe God has spoken directly to you. And if you really want to hear God speak audibly to you today, get an audio Bible. They're awesome. And that's how. You can have God speak to you right there in your bedroom. Just get an audio Bible. So we need to be discerning and we need to put our full weight in the promises of God in Scripture. But even when you come to Scripture, we need to be careful 
Because it's very easy for us to still make Scripture mean what we want it to mean, right? I heard the story of a guy who went and saw his pastor and said, I'm going to leave my wife. And the pastor said, well, on what basis are you going to leave your wife? And the guy said, on the basis of Philippians 4.13, which says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. He said, there it is. I can do all things so I can leave my wife. Now, that is a chronic misinterpretation of Scripture. That guy did not have any kind of a handle on what that promise actually means. That promise is an encouragement that we can endure all things through the strength that God gives us. If anything, it should have been for that guy an encouragement to persevere in the difficulties of his marriage rather than bail out. But we can come to the promises of God and we can just make them mean what we want them to mean if we want to. There's an old saying that that goes, wonderful things in the Bible I see, some of them put there by you and by me. (laughs) And we read things into the Bible that we want to be there. We really want this to mean that in my life. But just be careful. Ask those questions. What does this actually mean? Who's giving this promise? Who was it originally given to? And what is the context? And if you're not sure and you struggle to figure that out, ask someone. Ask someone who knows the Bible a bit better than you. This is the joy of discerning these things in community. It's really helpful to have some other people around you that can help you wrestle with the promises of God in Scripture. Just do this from a solid place of what this promise actually meant and what it means. Then, having asked that question, what has God promised? We can ask the second question, which is, what does this promise look like in view of Jesus? Or another way of asking that and using Paul's language is to ask, how is Jesus the yes to this promise? How does Jesus provide? If Christ is the yes to all of the promises of God, what does this particular promise look like in view of the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus? So let me give you one example here. A little bit of a tricky one, but in Psalm 103, it says this in verse 2, Praise the Lord, my soul, and forget not all his benefits who forgives all your sins, there's a promise, and heals all your diseases, there's a promise as well. So that's an interesting verse because you have these two quite different promises, a promise of forgiveness and a promise of physical healing. Now, if you just take that promise, grab it out of that verse and apply it to your life, you will say, God, I am not only entitled to receive your forgiveness, but I'm entitled to receive full physical healing for any sickness, disease, injury that I have. But this is the problem, is that we come to the Bible and we just see it sometimes just as a bullet-pointed list of promises. And that flattens out the contours of Scripture. And it overlooks the fact that Scripture is primarily the story of God. It has a narrative arc to it. It rises to its apex in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And whenever we come to a promise in the Bible, we need to just place it in the context of that story and look at how it points to Jesus. So all these promises that come before Jesus, we need to look at how they are fulfilled in Jesus. All these promises that come on the other side of Jesus, we still need to see what do they mean in view of the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. So that's the question to ask with all promises, including this one. So if you take that promise in Psalm 103 and you take it through to the New Testament, you look at how it works out, you see that, yes, Jesus has provided for our forgiveness, and yes, Jesus has provided for our healing. But those promises are outworked in different ways. The promise of forgiveness is fulfilled in our lives now when we become a follower of Jesus. First John says, if anyone 
confesses their sins, God is faithful and just and will forgive their sins and cleanse them from all unrighteousness. That happens as soon as a person comes to Christ in faith. But we also discover that the promise of physical healing awaits us in the new creation. Because we read passages in Philippians, passages in 1 Corinthians 15 about the new body that we will receive, Revelation, other parts of the Bible. And we see that promise of physical healing, that is a promise that awaits us in the new creation. Yes, it's fulfilled through Jesus. Yes, it was purchased on the cross. It's true, there is healing in the cross, just as much as there is forgiveness in the cross. But that promise is not applied to our lives until the new creation. And what we contend to want to do is to try and reach into the new creation, try and reach into the new heavens and the new earth and wrench that promise out of the future and put it in the present. Because we see this promise in Scripture and we feel like it should be ours now. But that is a promise that will be fulfilled in the new creation. And these are things that we need to discern carefully. Even in the life of Jesus, this was true, wasn't it? Jesus would heal one person, but he wouldn't heal others. Jesus appears to one guy who can't walk and says, do you want to be healed? How many other guys were sitting around the pool that day that didn't get healed? Even in the ministry of Jesus, for every one person who's healed, and that's what we focus on because that's the story in the gospel, countless others weren't healed. So what Christ is doing there is bringing a taste of new creation into the present, but that is the exception. It's not normative in this present age. So we can't expect by divine right that God is just going to automatically step in, provide full, complete physical healing. That's just not promised for now, but it is promised for the new creation. Again, this is why it's so important to work these things through in community, to talk with others who know Scripture, to talk around these promises, to read Scripture together, to understand these promises are fulfilled in Jesus, but how? Which are fulfilled now and which are fulfilled in the new creation? Because there is a staging to the fulfillment of God's promise. So what does this promise look like in view of Jesus is a really important question to ask. If we don't ask that question and we apply the promises of Scripture directly into our lives today, we are setting ourselves up for a train wreck. We're setting ourselves up for our faith, frankly, to be devastated if those promises don't come true right now when we want them to because they may not be promised for right now. Finally, final question to ask. How do I apply this promise to my life? Again, these are simple questions. But as we look at this, the promises of Scripture, as we ask ourselves, what does this promise look like in view of Jesus? Then we can and should apply these promises into our lives today. Yes, we need to be discerning, but we can apply. We should celebrate them. We should claim them. We should be encouraged by what we read in Scripture. And let me give you just one way of doing this. I've found it really helpful to pray the promises of Scripture. When I'm praying for people, praying for things, praying for my own life, to actually pray in line with what God has promised in the Bible. We did this at our staff meeting on Wednesday. We were sitting around talking about an issue that we're facing as a church. We prayed about it, and I just prayed the promise of James 1, where God says, if any of you lacks wisdom, it's definitely me, uh, let him ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to him. So I've prayed that prayer a lot because there's a lot of situations in which I lack wisdom. But that, that's standing on a promise in Scripture and saying, God, you have said that if we lack wisdom, you will provide the wisdom that we need in a given. So it doesn't mean that everything's going to work out perfectly, but it means that God will give us wisdom for today as we need it. So we stood on that promise and we claimed that promise. 
And this is great because then you're not just using your own words to God, but you are taking God at His word. And you are standing on what God Himself has bound Himself to. And as long as you are doing that responsibly with Scripture and not playing fast and loose with the text, then we can stand on the promises of God's Word. And I want to just encourage you this week, if you think about the situation you're in or the season of life that you are in, think about one promise in the Bible. I know this actually relies on you knowing your Bible and reading your Bible, but as you do that, think about one promise that would apply to what you're going through at the moment. One thing that God has said could be Old Testament, could be New Testament. What has God promised and how might it apply? And, and pray that promise for yourself. Pray it for your family. Thank God for it and claim it and stand on it. There's tremendous power in praying the promises of God. You might be in a situation of real financial difficulty at the moment and you're really struggling financially. And you can take hold of the promise in Philippians 4.19 that says, My God will supply all of your needs according to His glorious riches in Christ Jesus. What a wonderful promise. So you don't just pray, you know, generally, generally, well, I need this, I need that. You say, God, you have spoken. And if you believe this is God's revealed word, you can claim that promise and say, God, you have said that you will supply. It doesn't mean God's going to give you, you know, 10 times more than what you need and he's gonna, you just pray for this thing and visualize it and God's going to bring it to you. No, 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 it's none of that. It's none of that. It's not, this is not prosperity doctrine stuff. This is simply saying, God, you have said you will provide for my needs out of your riches and I'm standing on that promise. And I pray you'd strengthen my family with that promise. Write it out. Put it on your dashboard. Do what you need to do with it. Maybe you're feeling anxious. Something's going on in your life, transitional time. Maybe you're feeling anxious for the future of your kids. And maybe the promise for you to claim is that promise earlier on in Philippians 4, where Paul says, the peace of God that transcends all understanding will guard your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus. It's emphatic language. The peace of God will guard your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus. So pray that. Don't just pray generally, but pray specifically along the lines of what God himself has spoken in his revealed word. God, you have promised me that your peace will guard my heart and my mind, and so I want to claim that promise. And as you speak it, commit that verse to memory and just have it there rolling around in your mind, and God will use that. He'll bring it back to you. I've found that if you memorize scripture, God will bring it back at just the moment you need it, and it will be there, and it will be a real strength for you. Maybe you feel you, you can't feel your faith at the moment. Maybe you, you can't feel God's presence. He just seems so far away. You don't even know if you're a Christian anymore because you don't have any strong sense of God's presence on kind of an emotional level. Maybe the promise for you is Hebrews 10:13, which says, God says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Simple promise. That's actually a quotation from the Old Testament, but very simple promise. But to pray that in your life, not just pray, God, I can't feel my faith. Help me to feel my faith. Help me to feel my faith. But to say, God, you have spoken. And your word says, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. And God, I just believe that's true. In spite of what my feelings tell me, in spite of what my emotions tell me, I just believe, God, that that's true because that's what you have said. And I'm going to let my emotions catch up later. I'm going to let my feelings catch up later. But I believe, God, you are nearer to me than I am to myself. You are right here with me. 
Not because I can or can't feel your presence, but because you've spoken it in your word. There's tremendous power in that. It takes a conviction in the power of God's word to speak into the situations of our lives. And let me say again, we need to be responsible in our handling of Scripture. We need to be careful. I'm assuming you've asked the first two questions by the time you get to this third one. But as you have done that, take hold of these promises. They are there for us. They're there to be prayed. They're there for our lives to be built upon. So let's step back from all this and just enjoy seeing Jesus as the great yes to all the promises that God has made. God's great yes to every promise in Scripture. And then let's allow our lives to be the amen, to sound the great amen, not only on the day that we became a Christian, but continually in our lives as we see all these promises and we see the way they point to Jesus and then we take hold of those promises in our lives and we say, amen, God, I agree, I affirm it, I bind my life to what you have said in your word. Let's be strengthened, let's be encouraged, let's be empowered by the promises of God. Amen. Let's pray. Father, I think of another promise in your word where you've spoken through the prophet and said, my word will not go out from me. My word will not go forth without accomplishing the purpose for which I send it. And we want to trust God in that promise this morning that even as your word has been opened and spoken, that we trust now, God, that your word has gone forth and that it's going to accomplish in our lives the purpose that you have ordained. And we want to trust, God, that you would seal your promises on our hearts now and that you would bring to mind the promises in your word that speak right into the situations that we are going through. And above all of that, God, we just ask that you would give us a bigger vision of Jesus, a greater vision of Jesus as your yes to all the promises that you have made. Thank you that they are fulfilled in him. Thank you that through him, we speak the Amen. And so we say that together in Jesus' name. Amen. This has been a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more of our teaching resources, or to donate to our teaching resource ministry, or for more information on Shaw Community Church, visit www.shaw.org.nz. Alternatively, you can email office at shaw.org.nz or phone 09. 415-0455 Thank you for listening.